3: Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the
4: family.
2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours.
5: But with the help of my private investigator, I found Drusilla Morita.
2: How can I help you? We're working on a podcast about, um, about Ron Thomas.
5: And she was alive, and not in prison, not buried somewhere, and not in any trouble. It's clear Dick Weston's former girlfriend knows details about what happened to the Stevensons that no one else does. She could give Carol Thompson and her daughter Shannon answers, at least some. Answers that have escaped that family for the past four decades.
3: Uh, I'd rather not talk about that
6: right now. Thank you very much.
5: On the phone. At this point, I've done all I can to get Drusilla to talk phone calls, messages, even a door knock. But she won't budge. I can understand why Drusilla doesn't want to talk. She wants to forget about all of this, move on, live her life. The problem I have with that sort of thinking is Stevenson family members deserve answers and Drusilla undoubtedly has plenty. Yet because there is no statute of limitations on murder, I can also see why she wouldn't want to say the wrong thing and wind up with the feds standing at her front door. Previously on Paper Ghosts This Ron,
3: he said this uh, friend of his, Ron, that the FBI was looking for him. Boy, I figured if he was involved in a shootout, I guess he was. And, and, you know, had something to do
5: with him and that Ron Thomas. Why do you think Dick protected Ron? Money. He paid Dick, you think?
3: Well, yeah, you'd get paid, too, if you had two grocery bags flapped full of money. That was your pay to do what? Cover up his out of the deal.
2: I said, oh my God, he wants to kill me. He wants me gone.
5: My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of 44 true crime books. This is season two of Paper Ghosts Burned. Cases like the Stevenson murders are generally not too difficult to unpack. The challenge is providing families with the resolution they have been searching for, realizing they may not be ready to accept what you find. Did Billy become entangled with the wrong people? Was his family collateral damage? Was family friend Ron Thomas involved? And what's more, Did Ron hire Dick Weston to help him settle a personal and or monetary debt? These questions have plagued me throughout the years I have been involved in this case. And the hardest part, by asking these questions you are, to some extent, blaming the victim. Yet, it is an unavoidable facet of mass murder investigation. One you hope to come away from with an answer that won't hurt the family more than they have already been. So at times you find yourself facing an uncomfortable dilemma. Does the family actually want to know what happened when it's clear there are disturbing details within that reality? Because that truth can be a hell of a lot uglier than one could have ever imagined.
2: I grew up hearing my mom's stories. I think she had this fear that they were going to be forgotten, and Ron's name was never tied to it.
5: You might recall Shannon Grub, Carol Thompson's daughter, from a previous episode. Shannon was just three and a half when her mom pulled her out of bed in the middle of the night after learning their family's house was on fire.
2: I remember standing there and watching them bring the bodies out of the house course, I was devastated. I didn't know what was going on in there. There's fire trucks and there's people and there's police. And, you know, then I see the bodies coming out and you know, it it was, it's pretty devastating for, you know, that's my first, you know, I have minor memories of a kid, you know, just seeing things, but that's my first real memory that just always stuck with me. You know, I had nightmares for years. I thought about it for years.
5: Within all of this, Shannon has remained her mother's rock. One might think she lives with some sort of secondary PTSD, having been there, weathering the aftermath of watching family suffer for decades while dealing with the loss herself. But Shannon has remained steadfast in finding answers, taking on the all-consuming task of digging in and, over the course of 20 years, actually uncovering information. So, as you grow up, What's going through your mind about this case, and what is driving it?
2: I was a strange kid. Um, (laughs) Didn't have a lot of friends in school. I was very quiet, very reserved. I had a lot of anxiety, you know, when it came to people. Um, You know, my mom was kind of paranoid, and I was, you know, I think it just kind of rubbed off on me because, you know, I saw firsthand what, you know, a friend is capable of. So I think that kind of just screwed me up. And as I was growing, you know, I thought a lot about this case and the fact that Ron got away, and it always broke my heart that, you know, My mom would watch over her shoulder for the longest time.
5: Ron Thomas, that friend Shannon mentions, became like a recurring cancer on this family. Carol Thompson remains terrified to this day, even after 40 years, because of a possible threat still existing in their world. And that fear she has passed down to her daughter Shannon is exacerbated by not knowing what happened and, most importantly, who else is responsible fear feeds on itself
2: i remember this man came to the door one day knocking and i opened the door and he said that he had gotten something in his eye and what i let him in to go rinse his eye out me being this naive eight-year-old you know i let this man into my home and now i'm home alone i was all by myself mom and dad were probably at work or something so, you know, mom got home and I told her about it. And I just remember her reaction. She freaked out so bad. She was so scared because it could have been Ron to this day. We don't know who it was. It, it might have been Ron. And I don't know, just her reaction and just everything growing up. And it just ate at me even more that this man is free. You know, who knows who else he heard after that? Who knows what he went on and did after that?
5: As I have come to learn throughout my investigation, I can say with certainty that Ron Thomas wasn't a family friend, as Carol had thought. He was a cunning sociopath who had masterminded the murder of her entire family. Every single law enforcement source I have spoken to has confirmed this. Ron was the man behind the curtain from the very beginning, telling Dick Weston what to do and when to do it. This became clear to Carol and Shannon as they tried to move on with their lives in the decades that followed.
2: I wanted my mom to have peace, you know? Yes, it would help me too, but me and my mom have always been very, very close. She was very close to her mom. Me and her are very, very close. We're like best friends. My mom, you know, she was so scared and it bothered her so bad. So it kind of
5: turns you into an armchair investigator, if you will, as you go on. I love
2: to investigate, love it. What do you first do? And so I contacted um, records here and the sheriff's office here inquiring if um, the files were still around, if, you know, because I knew that the files were marked do not destroy because they told me on the phone. And I'm like, how can I get access to these? I know it's supposed to be public records.
5: So you're beginning to look into this and your main goal is to get a hold of the records so you can find out exactly what
2: happened. I wanted to torture Ron. I I did. I'm not going to lie. My goal was to find Ron, get these records, and I wanted to send him crime scene photos, newspaper articles, just stuff to make him think about it every day for the rest of his life. I wanted him to get these in the mail once a week, just constantly, constant reminders. I wanted to torture the man.
5: So far, I've learned all I can about Ron Thomas' life before the Stevenson murders. But I need to dig into what happened to this so-called family friend after. I've come to understand there is one man who knows more than most about Ron Thomas' life after he ran from Bethel, Ohio. A detective who has never spoken publicly about any of this and who has been hard to track down. In fact, once I found him, I sensed a bit of trepidation in his voice about sharing his story, and he chose to remain quiet. Yet, after some time and a bit of discussion, one day in early spring, he decided it was time to talk. Hello? Dave, how you doing? I'm William Phelps.
3: Hey, how you doing, Mr. Phelps? You doing all right?
5: I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Well,
3: I I gotta say, I can't complain much. You know, wouldn't do any good if I did anyway. (laughs)
5: <laughs> that's so yeah. true that's so true how's the weather david there? bell is a former columbia south carolina detective who began his law enforcement career in 1972 as a line deputy with the richland county sheriff's office
3: and i love uniform division because i love the connection with the people you know because i you know i just like trying to help people if i could and finally uh they said come on man you know we really need your you know, your experience in uh, investigation division. So I went ahead and, and transferred to investigation division, and I didn't major crimes in a particular um, area that I patrolled as the uniform division. And I was, you know, had a lot of connections and contacts in that area. You know, uh, the people would come to me and give me information on certain crimes and so forth.
5: Those connections in the community are priceless to cops who later become detectives. A trust is established. And for a detective, there is no better information than what he or she can develop on the street. Ron Thomas's name did not cross David Bell's desk until the early 2000s, after Bell had been assigned to a brand new cold case unit.
3: And of course, that opened up the big can of worms. That's when we learned about the Stevenson murders, the gold buying Business, the mafia connection, you know Richard West and all these, all these people, you know, connected to to all this crime from robberies to murders and and lord knows what else.
5: Now, what kind of guy did Ron Thomas strike you as when you began to look into this cold case and look at his background?
3: All right, Ron Thomas was a uh, scumbag. If it was something dirty, he
5: had his hands in it. Turns out, Ron Thomas left behind his wife in Ohio and fled to South Carolina, where he owned and operated a gold, silver, and jewelry exchange. This was the main location where he'd been running off to each time he evaded the police looking into his involvement in the Stevenson case. And yet there was another reason for Ron's frequent visits to South Carolina. Ron Thomas had a mistress there for what had amounted to the past 14 years, a woman named Irene Floyd, who first met Ron when he was her foreman at a manufacturing company in 1968 and continued to work for him at his store in South Carolina. To understand this case, we have to take a few steps back before the Stevenson murders, because to really know Ron Thomas, you have to look at Irene Floyd. Irene was no common middle-aged woman living the cozy life in the warm South. She had quite the checkered past, starting with her first husband, her high school sweetheart, who had died tragically in 1966.
3: They had a bad relationship from the get-go, and uh, they had gotten to a real bad domestic dispute one night, so she called the Columbia Police Department on him, and so they were uh, looking for his car. And uh, when well, she happened to see the car. And so she went to go find a police officer to tell him where, where he was at. And while she was talking to the police officer, he actually drove, drove by and she goes, there he goes now. So the police went to stop him and, uh, he took off running from the police. Well, he got just a couple of blocks and right there in, in the middle of Columbia, we have these trains that come through Columbia. And there was a train coming, and he tried to beat the train, and he lost. And his his car got hit by the train, and he was killed instantly in the the accident. Actually, Irene made a lot of money on his insurance, plus from the train company.
5: Irene Floyd sued everyone involved after her first husband was killed by that train. I've been told she was awarded life-changing money, Yet nobody could give me an exact figure.
3: So she uh, learned real quick how easy she could come about money uh, with insurance policies and sue the persons you know responsible for the death. So that takes us to husband number two.
5: Not long after, Irene married her second husband, a Kentucky-born transplant named William Floyd. The following year. Irene met and began working for Ron Thomas.
3: Yeah, she was his secretary, in the, so to speak. And they started having an affair while she was married to William Floyd. But William says, well, you know, I'd rather have you uh, share you than lose you. I love you that much.
5: Even though William Floyd knew his wife was having an affair with Ron Thomas, William decided against divorcing Irene. But at some point, it became too much to bear and William filed. The divorce was finalized in July 1980. They divorce and then what happens?
3: What happened was William Floyd never removed Irene as being beneficiary on his insurance policy. And Irene found out about this. So, Irene kind of led him along and implied that she wanted to remarry him.
5: So Irene hatched a plan. She convinced William that she had left Ron Thomas for good and wanted to make their relationship work. You know, give the marriage a second try. After a few months, she set up a rendezvous at a Tennessee motel. William Floyd, still in love with Irene, agreed to meet and talk.
3: When Irene got to the Memphis, you know, she got him drunk because she met him up there with the pretense of getting remarried. And uh, so when she got him set up in the motel, she was supposed to call this other motel and, uh, and ask for a gym. And she was supposed to identify herself as Linda. And, uh, and that was to uh, Satan that she told them what room he was in and that the door was unlocked.
5: Ron Thomas was on the other end of that call. He had been waiting in a nearby motel, ready to receive word to set his next course of action in motion. And get this, Ron's so-called bodyguard, Dick Weston, he and another man Ron had hired were not too far away, waiting in the wings for Ron's direction.
3: And Richard Weston and a guy from uh, Indiana across the state line went in there with baseball bats and beat Bill Floyd severely with baseball bats in the head and up her torso and left him for dead. You know, I mean, they beat him unmercifully.
5: Here again was Ron Thomas ordering others to do for him what he did not have the guts to do himself.
3: And Irene Thomas, for an alibi, she drove herself, after she made the phone call, to a hospital and said she was having a severe migraine headache to give herself an alibi.
5: William Floyd did not die from that motel beating, but he was left severely deformed with nearly all of the skin on his face beaten off and parts of his skull caved in.
3: She called Ron Thomas and told Ron Thomas that Bill was still alive. And Ron Thomas says, well, uh, I doubt... Uh, Don't worry, he's not going to live. There's no way he can survive that assault.
5: Ron was so certain William Floyd wouldn't make it, he instructed Irene to call him when that time came to pass and say this, the Lincoln has been sold. According to police reports, several men posing as preachers even showed up at the hospital to inquire about William Floyd's condition. The hospital staff became immediately suspicious and would not allow them into the room.
3: So he was put in a uh, facility that cared for people that were like vegetables. Bill Floyd's family would not allow her to see him. And so she couldn't get to him.
5: William Floyd was confined to a wheelchair, incapable of walking, talking, bending for himself. The guy was left blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, and would suffer multiple seizures every single day. All this man did, mind you, was show forgiveness to his cheating wife by agreeing to talk about moving on and getting back together. And this is how she repays him. William sat idly all day inside the rehab facility and stared into space, a shell of the caring and loving man I have heard he once was.
3: I don't know how she did it. I could never did, was able to figure it out. But she was able to, to sneak him out of this facility. And she drove him to a probate judge's office in South Carolina. And that, even though he was in that condition, that judge married her and Bill. Remarried him. How she finagled the system to be able to remarry him, and his condition is beyond my imagination. So she immediately took him out of that facility and took him home to her house here in Columbia to take care of him, because he he still has that insurance policy.
0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
5: Shannon. The day before I planned to leave Ohio, I got a call from Carol Thompson's daughter, Shannon Group, asking to meet up. Shannon had a source close to Ron Thomas, who she'd been messaging with on Facebook. And over time, she had collected close to 50 pages of information about the guy. A treasure trove, if there ever was one. How's it going?
2: Really good. Brought those documents you requested. Excellent. She doesn't want to be in this at all. She doesn't want her name in it. Why do you think that? Fear, maybe? I don't know. I I really don't know. You know, so many years have passed, I don't know why anyone would, you know. And it could be hard on her, too, given her relation to the people involved.
5: I know who this source is, and the information I've been given is highly credible. Like others who have been hesitant to speak or prefer to use an alias, I understand and respect the need to keep a distance. Shannon handed me a quarter-inch thick stack of documents to go through, all of it dealing with Ron Thomas and his relationship to Irene Floyd. Information no one would be able to find out through public records. While I was looking into Drusilla Morita's whereabouts, I handed the material off to my producer, Christina Everett, and asked her to find out what she could, break down the social media conversations, included in the documents, and determine what we could learn from it.
4: There's a lot to go through. This woman is really complicated and knows a lot more than we imagined.
5: Yeah, I mean, you read through everything and did some digging. What do you think? What did you come up with?
4: Well, what's interesting is the timing of everything, right? So William Floyd is attacked in May 1981, and Irene marries William for the second time in August 1981. And you know what happened between those months.
5: The Stevenson murders.
4: Right. So she ends up talking to the FBI. And we know now that she was still carrying on her affair with Ron during this time. So it's really interesting because we get to learn a little bit more about what Ron was going through during the months that the murders happened. Um, She says that she talked on the phone with Ron at one point on June 29th and said that she wanted to come visit him. But he was adamant and said that under no circumstances was she to come to either Indiana or Ohio to visit him because the next weekend he was carrying off some big deal that he needed to be there for.
5: That next weekend would be the 4th of July. And that big deal turned out to be the Stevenson murders
4: we look back and we see that she spoke to him on the phone about five weeks earlier in at the end of May. And she's telling Ron that she doesn't have any money and he doesn't have any either, but suggests to her that if money is an issue that he could arrange to have her house burned down for $10,000 and she can just collect the insurance money on it. So Ron said that he didn't have any money to lend her, but He was going to be working on a deal that would really set him up financially, but was complicated. He said that the deal would involve several people. He mentioned the names Steve and Linda in relation to this deal that he was going to be doing. Um, And according to Irene, Ron said, quote, that SOB had more money than he could ever spend, but yet he wanted to steal everything that he could from everybody else. So there's a second call between Ron and Irene that happens July 10th after the murders. Um, and the tone of this one is far different. Ron says the FBI had the goods on him, that his house was surrounded, his phones was tapped, and he was going to go to prison for a long time. So Irene's in tears. She's crying. She's asking, are you in trouble? He says, yes. She asks, what did you do? And he says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Well,
5: it sounds there to me like Ron is basically admitting his involvement in this.
4: There was enough talk beforehand during their phone calls for Irene to figure out that this was not a spontaneous attack. This was a planned thing. It was something that Ron had thought of for weeks at least before he carried it out. It was not in the heat of the moment. But Irene did say that Ron was waiting for somebody else to get out of prison to help him carry out this deal. And so Irene figured that that person he was talking about was Dick Weston, because she knows that Dick had just gotten out of prison a few months earlier in February for bank robberies.
5: Considering how long they were together at this point, it's puzzling why Irene Floyd would suddenly flip on Ron Thomas and rat him out to the feds.
4: Around the time when Irene married William Floyd, there was a Bump in Irene's relationship with Ron, and it had to do with a bankruptcy issue on Ron's behalf, Um, and it was messy, and it involved Irene and her assets. So it seems like they were on the rocks for some time, and they weren't talking. And maybe Irene thought that was the end of it, because then she went to the FBI and ratted him out.
5: That rough patch didn't last long, though, because Irene and Ron continued their affair and according to detective david bell ron continued his business affairs with dick weston all while dick remained in prison on suspicion of the stevenson murders do you think ron thomas was involved in running guns and and drugs
3: i don't know about the the guns, but the, now if, my, if i remember right the fbi was uh looking and, and this came from irene that uh, they suspected ron and uh smuggling drugs into uh, prison where well, richard uh, uh dick he worked with dick i think
5: so him and dick had a scam going where ron would get the drugs into dick and dick would sell them
3: yeah that may not have been actually confirmed but that was what he was suspected of
5: Two years had gone by since Irene married William Floyd the second time. With Ron Thomas lying low from the police and Dick Weston still in jail, Irene had to find someone else to do her dirty work yet again.
3: We got a statement from a, a guy who knew had connections to, uh, to Irene. Irene got... <laughs> ...to shoot Bill Floyd... In the head with a shotgun and make it look like a suicide.
5: The name of the person mentioned is bleeped because although Detective Bell is certain, based on his investigation, nobody was ever arrested for that murder.
3: Now, Irene, she uh, conveniently left the house that morning and went someplace to give herself an alibi. And while she was gone, supposedly now, her uh, husband in the wheelchair... Pulled down this attic stairwell, under the folding stairs, crawled up into the attic, got a 12-gauge shotgun, brought it back down the stairs, went into a bathroom, put the shotgun in his mouth, and pushed the trigger with the, the big toe of his right foot that was paralyzed and blew his head off.
5: That's what they expected you to believe.
3: That what that's what they ruled it. They ruled it. Actually, ruled it a suicide.
5: And you go back and you look at the cold case, the autopsy reports, the crime scene reports, etc., and you find it. It's not a suicide.
3: Well, you know, here is here is our problem. Those records only kept so many years, and those records are destroyed. We did not have a file copy. Uh, of Floyd's suicide because it had been destroyed. The only information I could get on his suicide was from the coroner's office.
5: And you re-interviewed everybody.
3: Yeah, well, whoever we those that we could find. Yeah, you yeah, but uh, so that's the only way that we were able to get information on on Floyd's uh, alleged suicide. And and it still blew my mind. I couldn't believe. Because I knew the investigators that responded to the scene of Bill Floyd, and apparently they were lied to on, on the real condition of, of Floyd when they got there, or, or they would have never ever signed off on. Oh yeah, that okay, suicide. You know, I mean, if they knew he was confined to a wheelchair, they would never have done right. that. You, you know, I mean, that was just ludicrous. Anyway, so so Bill Floyd was death was ruled a suicide. She eventually was uh, got his, she had to wait a little bit longer, but she got the insurance. Made Ron Thomas happy.
5: William Floyd's death conveniently paved the way for Irene and Ron Thomas to ride off into the sunset together with a fat insurance payout to celebrate with. $90,000 to be exact. Only problem was Ron still had a wife back in Indiana. And Irene. Well, lest we forget, she had two dead husbands in her past. In the next episode of Paper Ghosts.
3: I looked straight at him because he done it and I didn't.
5: What kind of look did he give you back?
2: It weren't nice. It was evil. If Luke's had
4: killed, he'd kill him.
2: So I decide that I am going to take a gun to court the next day, and I'm going to kill Ron on the courthouse steps.
3: We were looking into Ron Thomas when uh, we got familiar with Irene Thomas, the Black Widow.
5: Paper Ghosts is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett with script consultant Matthew Riddle audio editing and mixing by Abu Zafar thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio the series theme number 442 is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows
0: No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99